Moramai, this is Manx Radio. Earlier this week, we brought you the sad news that our friend and former colleague Terry Kringle had passed away at the age of 91. A renowned broadcaster and writer, a true master of his craft, Terry was a giant in Manx journalism, respected and loved by so many people, as the hundreds of tributes this week have clearly shown. And as we reflect on what was, by any standards, a remarkable career, we now bring you a second opportunity to hear a programme that was recorded and first broadcast just after Terry officially retired in the summer of 2020. Howard Kane paid Terry a visit to share memories and stories from a career spanning over 70 years. Hello, this is Terry Kringle. <laughs> and this is Howard Kane. Not quite two old farts yet, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's a chance, I thought, to drop in on Terry. Now that, uh, well, I don't know whether he's the history man or the Kringle file, or you might know him from the papers or yeah. freelance work, goodness knows what, yeah. uh, has eventually hung up his notepad, as you might have seen in the papers of late. So I thought it was a chance to drop by, have a quick coffee, go and see him how he's getting on, and hear a little bit about some of those early days, because, what, 70-odd years in journalism. How did it all start out? Because journalism wasn't in the family, was it? It wasn't in the family, and uh, it certainly wasn't... Uh, that, that I didn't have it in my mind when I was still at uh, Douglas High School up at St Ninian's when I was still there and, you know, coming to the end. And... Uh, just didn't have anything at all in mind. I was ca- casting around, and uh, I, I had to think of something. Something I, to do? Yeah, I knew I was being flung out into the big wide world, and I had to do something. And fortunately, I had a tip-off. I had a, you know, one of my uh, fellow uh, people up here sort of said, well, look, uh, you, you should think about uh, trying to get a job in the examiner. Uh, I, I can tell you what, I've got a, you know, I know, I know somebody and uh, I'm told that they're looking for somebody to take on and train as a cub reporter. So I said, oh, well, I'll, uh, I'll try that. So what will I do? Just call down at the examiner office in Hill Street and yeah, yeah, I'll do do that. Well, the only way I could go there was on foot. No, I went with, actually. I went from school, from the high school, and and it was you know it's a good long walk from there down to Hill Street, and it was pouring with rain, and so when I got there, I was drenched from head to foot. However, I went in, they had the little examiner shop part of the frontage, which people went in to put their adverts and, you know, pick up copies of the paper. And I said, I've come to apply for the job as a reporter. And the girl behind the counter said, "Uh, oh, oh, well, I didn't know that that was on. But anyway, come on in and come and see him. Come and see Mr. Stephen. I thought, right, okay." so I came in. And there he was sitting behind his desk and I was there covering, you know, spitting water all over the place. And uh, so he said, you want to you want to take a job? Do you want to become a, a reporter? I said, yes, yes, please, if you if you don't mind, if you'd like to take me on. Well, he said, fine. That's uh, in fact, uh, I'm not going to ask you any questions. The fact that you found we were looking for somebody it's a good mark on your side. You were finding out something, and that's what we have to do. So you found out, 
You've spent enough time in my office in front of my desk shedding water all over the floor. So it's done. You're on. Just get out, come back again, turn in for work on next Monday at nine o'clock and we'll... We'll have you on and take you round and show you how to do it all. If you need to be shown, I thought, well, I do. So, uh, yeah, I turned up and I was taken on, went on to the to the examiner in Hill Street. And uh, there they started to teach me by example, more or less. They just said, look, whatever any of the other reporters are doing, you go with them and see what they do and just use your head. In those days, there was no typewriters. Copy was written by hand. Oh, gosh. So that was it. We had little pads. And uh, so we wrote, I, whatever I was asked to do, you, but uh, what the others did, they just wrote it and it was handed down to the, uh, to, to the works where they had this big cossa press which was a thunderous thing. Once they pressed the button on that to put the examiner to press and get it out on the streets, there was a tremendous noise. And I loved it. Other people did. And, of course, you know, the copy went down to uh, one of the boys who was uh, looked at it and pressed the button and uh, put it up in lead. This, these were the days of hot lead. Hot lead. Hot lead. Nobody had in, in, invented uh, one of those damn things that uh, replaced typewriters. Oh, word processors. Word processors. Computers. Co computers, <laughs> computers, yes, the dreaded computers, which I never liked. Still don't. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how it went on. And I found I was, was okay. I mean, at school, I'd been good at, uh, at English, Really very good, exceptionally good, actually. So I had no trouble as far as that was concerned. What I wrote made sense. And so that's how it went on and on and on. And, on. and then, of course, National Service intervened. I was called up 1949 and shot off uh, for what became two years National Service. It was meant to start off as 18 months but uh, while all this was happening, the Korean War started. So all, everybody who'd been called up got an extra six months. After his much-loved national service, Terry went on to work in the UK for several papers, made a big change in his life and started to become a legend in his own lunchtime. While I'd been away, travelling around the country, I got married to a Yorkshire lady in Otley, name of Anne. We're now divorced. She divorced me for very good reason. I was a bad boy and it was the greatest mistake I ever met. And by this time I'd learned a bit about freelancing. And so what I did was I would send stuff to the... I mean, I was well known in Manchester, which is the last place I was working. And you know, when I went away, the boys said, look, come on, we don't get a very good news service from the, uh, the fellas over there. You know the score. Do it. So every lunchtime, when every not it was dinner time, of course, the other reporters would go off home for dinner. This is why I've never I don't eat lunch anymore. I was able to nip out with that news of today, go round the corner to the phone box, 
and send it to all, all the customers. And I made a lot of money. And, you know, and as far as I was concerned, that was good because I like money and I know how to spend it. Believe me. <laughs> You're not alone there. <laughs> and then, of course, a rival to the news monopoly which the papers had always enjoyed on the island arrived in the shape of Manx Radio. What the examiner had done was they decided, oh, if we're going to supply them with the news, it won't be on Manx Radio. We'll have it on, we'll have it on in, the, in the examiner long before it gets to Manx Radio. And, of course, they forgot that these were two dis- different, different aspects of the media. The uh, people were quite ha- would be happy to listen to it on Manx Radio a little bit, get the full story from the examiner. Anyway, the examiner made a mess of that. And so I was t- Manx Radio came along and said, right, will you do a new service for us? So I, uh, I did it. I set up the Manx, Manx Radio's first news new service. service. Yes. And so the directors of Manx Radio took me on. And, of course, eventually the government took over and mm-hmm. they took over me as well. And uh, that was it. I stuck with Manx Radio. So how did it work in the early days? Was it just you or with anyone else, any other reporters? Eventually, um, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, called Alan Bell, A.K. Bell, now in retirement, he, was, he used to supply me with news because he, he was still working. I think he was work, still, he's working at the Times, I think. So he was sending me stuff which to be paid for. Anyway, now I was full-time freelance. Mm-hmm. And, and working, doing the news service for Manx Radio then, of course? The condition was that I didn't... I gave Manx Radio... They didn't get the, a, a, a big run, an extra. It had to be even, Stephen, mm-hmm. for the people I send it to, the people I gave to Manx Radio, which, uh, which worked fair enough. And because I'd got the experience of when I was in Manchester, I got, I got some experience there working with the BBC. And actually, the BBC had a, an unmanned studio in Douglas. It was in the, um, it was upstairs over the, the uh, billiard saloon on the promenade. So I, I knew how to do broadcasting. Colin Brown, mm-hmm. Colin Brown, as we all know, he was the, the third who came to, to the show. Anyway, this went on quite nicely. And then all of a sudden, the, the government said Manx Radio uh, was spending too much money. There must be somebody redundancies. So uh, I was made redundant. So I went to see the managing director. I said, are you making me redundant? The other person said, I'm better than they are. <laughs> he said, well, you are better than they are, but you're getting more money than they are, so that's what we've got to save. And I said, oh, all right. He was a great bloke, that managing director. But you can't keep a good man down. Terry became well-known on the morning news shift, but what about the famous, nay, infamous, Kringlefile? I was up early. I had to be up at five. And I think the news, the early news may have been around about seven o'clock. And this was where the man who was running things up there, as far as the program was going, was good old George Ferguson. Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And George said, look, Terry, you know, I like the thing you do. Why don't you, when you're doing the news, also slip in a programme called The Kringle File. 
And that, that should, that's a good idea. I said, that's a fine idea. I said, yeah, but what will I put in it? He says, look, I decide that you're going to do it. You decide what you're going to put in. in it. So the uh, humor is my great failure, my great weakness, or my great charm, whatever it is, I don't know. And I, I found that uh, there wasn't much I could, I could uh, do. So I began picking up on jokes and, and mistakes that were being made anywhere at all. And so uh, quickly the public caught on. So all sorts of stuff was coming my way. So the Kringle file was a huge success and it caught the early morning traffic. You know. So was that how your sort of link with humour started really doing the Kringle file, you think? And, oh, yeah. And that convinced me that the way I want to work was to use as much humour as possible. Now... Round about, it so it so happened that the Isle of Man had its first drugs bust, and it was a fellow, local lad from university who was home for the you know for the break, mm-hmm. and he smoked cannabis, and he was up on Douglas Head smoking cannabis, and he was found out and. Uh, and he was arrested and taken to court. What, what eventually happened to him, I don't know. The story was obviously on the Bank Radio News. That, that was, the, that was the, uh, the moaning, and then the moaning, the man in line was on. Oh, yes, the old moaning. Yeah, and on to the man in line after this drugs case came on. And a good Banks lady, and she said, What's all this about you and this fellow up on Douglas Head with a can of piss? <laughs> <laughs> But from then on, as far as I was concerned, if I could make it funny or something funny was going on, for me, it was a deal and that's what I wanted and that's what I was happy doing forever after. Forever. And what about meeting, because obviously being a journalist and being well known in your time, I would say easily the best known journalist on the Isle of Man for years and years and years. A media celebrity. A media celebrity? Yes. (laughs) Which really people off (laughs) (laughs) but you did meet for example um, someone like Sean Connery I did yeah Um, that was when you know the casino uh, was mooted which was a brilliant idea I thought because they didn't have casinos uh, except private ones uh, across the water and uh, so the casino was opened and it was it was a mayor of Douglas who I've forgotten his name. It was his bright idea. Anyway, so Sean Connery came over and he did the opening thing, and the, his clever trick was to the, the the ceremony part was him throwing the ball into the roulette wheel. So he threw it in and it bounced back out again. <laughs> And I, you know, I thought, well, he's, he's, he's not much good at this. Is he? I hope he's good at being a 007 if he can't do a roulette wheel. And, you know, he laughed as well. He, he, he was he's the same age as me, John Connery, and uh, nearly as good looking. <laughs> <laughs> Sylvia Crystal, that's someone else you, you met? Well, yes. Um, and she came over, she was making a, a, a film, but it was a strange film. And she was staying at the uh, the Palace Hotel. And um, I was sent up, you know, to go interview her. 
So I went up, knocked on the door, I came in, and she said, oh, yes, I'll pack, I don't mind at all. And the producer was there, the, the film, and he said, no, that's all right, I'll, I'll stay by, though, just to keep things clean, or, you know, I don't know what he meant, but he... I, so, um, come, I, she was in bed, and I knew she had no clothes on. <laughs> so I sat on the bed next like to her. John and Yoko. <laughs> yes. I sat on the bed next to her, I knew she had no clothes on. But I got through and she got the interview and she was really, really good fun. I never looked back on Marvellous. that. Marvellous. Made a clean breast of it. Well done. <laughs> we were mentioning the uh, Manx Radio and the Kringle file, the yeah. papers, of course. Uh, border Television, you used to supply for Border Television. Well, yes, they, they were at that time. First of all, it was Granada who had the... the that, that they dealt with. They, they included the Isle of Man in their... Uh, uh, a broadcast area so I was the regular coverer of the Isle of Man for Carlisle and uh, there was a freelance photographer working there Steve and he, he's gone he went off ages ago to to Canada and so I did a lot I was on air almost every day with um, you know did lots and lots of stories and I learned how to do it how to talk to the camera and I got to like it Oh, I loved it Any, every time. And uh, well, that was it. And so that made me, you know... Even more famous. Even, yeah, so. But of course, in those days, they'd have to, the film would have to be flown across it over to be flown Carlisle. Over. So that's why, as the cameraman, as I say, he, he happened to be uh, a pilot, pilot, a private pilot's layout license. So he could shoot off straight away with it, and they'd have it on air that, that, you know, that night. So that uh, that made me very very famous, indeed. Even in Carlisle. <laughs> <laughs> and what about sort of? Do you remember or any of the big stories over the years stick in your mind? I suppose the most famous by far for people who have lived on the Isle of Man for a length of time would be the Summerland tragedy. Would that still stick in your mind as the biggest story? Or no, I'll never forget that night, particularly. It was, I was working hard trying to cover it and. Time went on, the bodies started coming out, and it was getting you know, the, the ambulances were coming to take the bodies off to a morgue. And I just saw them, all those bodies, lined up regimentally in, in you know, covered up mm. in, in ranks. That was that's, that the vision of that has never, ever left me, and I never will f forget, forget that. that. That was my worst experience. And yet there was a strange side to it. The, the, the local, the nearby pub, the, there were a whole lot of old-age pensioners in there singing their heads off, not realising that not right next door. It, was, it wasn't their fault. Yeah. They'd, you know, they'd have been shocked if they knew that. And uh, they were singing away and having a good time. And of course, you just you had to carry on. You had to cover the story. Oh yeah, yes, I did. So no, no, Summerland lasted with me a long, long time. A first-class serious journalist, a humorist, a self-proclaimed media celebrity, a playboy in some eyes, and of course, lifelong sporter of a swarthy tan, and not 
from a bottle. You have a reputation always of being um, a sun lover, and that uh, I can always remember, even when I started out at Manx Radio, still then, if it was a lovely hot day, in between bits yeah. of copy, there you'd be outside, stripped to the waist. That's right, yeah, down on the, on the, on the lower level, uh, where the commercial department was. A nice sheltered place, and I, yeah, I could sit out. And, uh, yeah, I always had a good, a good tan. And, uh, Still do. <laughs> well, yeah, I get plenty of chance here to sit out. And it'll be there today as well. They will, they're so, heading that way. Because yeah. I also remember, I don't know whether you remember this, but I think it was Susie Richardson when she was at Max Radio for yeah. many years. And uh, she, I think it was Susie, tells the story of when she first started at Manx Radio, and she, she was a bit nervous her first day, and she came in, and she says the very first person I met was just after a news bulletin, and then the studio door opened, and Terry Kringle came out just wearing a pair of red underpants, she said. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> You've been sunbathing, gone in, done the news, and gone, gone back out to get a bit more raised. What do you think, then, over the years? Is, is there anything you were particularly, or anything you enjoyed most? So there, there was the papers, starting off in the Isle of Man. There was working at the papers in the UK. There was, obviously, Max Radio. There was Border. Uh, and then, of course, latterly, up until only a few, a few months ago, people remember, of course, the History Man as well. Now, the History Man. That, for me... You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. History has always been a great interest of mine. I was, that was something I was very good at at school, one of my best subjects. And as a matter of print, you know, and doing other things, I, I would go to uh, the Manx Museum. I, I used to go in there to, to get information on other things. And it's, it occurred to me, and, you know, I, there's something more to be done with this. And I like research, so I researched more, and I... Finally produced it and thought, tried it out, and it worked. And I loved doing it. And I'm sorry, it's not well. It does on Sundays. It still comes out. It yes. gets. It gets. A, a it gets an airing now and again. It gets an airing, but uh, <clears throat> don't get paid. <laughs> don't get paid for this. <laughs> no, no, you're right there. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, so I'm very proud of the history, man, and it it was it's been a long running program. I think I started it around about 2002. That's when the scripts I kept go back to, mm-hmm. and that was every week. There must be hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. So after this long and packed life. This is something of which Terry's most proud. Yes, there is. And not perhaps what you may think. Yes. Uh, I've got a, a family. Yeah. I'm a very, I am a family man. That is the best coordination, human coordination, of people getting together is as a family. And I still have a family. My former wife, Anne, and I, we are still in close contact because we have this combined interest in the family itself. We have a son and and a daughter and three grandchildren. And as far as we're concerned, that's the family. And it's a happy family. The divorce didn't, didn't break them up. And family life is the best life and I have family life here. 
the trouble is, uh, lot of my family, nearly all of my family, live off the island. They can't get here, so I'm just waiting for the borders to be lifted, and then they can come, come over. And then they will come. Yeah. They they like coming to see Grandad, getting him into the car, taking him for a run round the Isle of Man, which I never get to see. <laughs> and it's amazing. I go out. Anne takes me out on on runs all over the, you know, now and again. And I've forgotten what the Isle of Man looks like. It's a beautiful place to live. It must be the most beautiful. It's the most beautiful place in the world for me. I'd sing you that song that the the Bee Gees fella sang. You know, <laughs> in the summer days, oh, where? <laughs> he, oh, he'll he, he, he was he was a little bit better than me. <laughs> and still enjoy the humour. Oh yeah, that 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 was yeah. That's humour. Can't do without it. And uh, fortunately, you're a funnyosity yourself. You like humour. I do my best. Yeah, you do. And you, you know, for me, I like listening to you. Well, we've always loved listening to you, Terry. Uh, you've been an inspiration to so many people at Max Radio and on the Isle of Man. A media star throughout, uh-huh. media star, playboy, journalist, goodness knows what, and still enjoying life. Thanks very much for taking some time to talk to us today. It's been a pleasure. The memories of our friend and former colleague Terry Crinkle, who passed away last Saturday, the 12th of February, at the age of 91. Terry was sharing those memories there with Howard Kane in a programme first broadcast in August 2020, just after Terry officially retired after over 70 years in the business. The programme is also now available as a podcast at manxradio.com.